Hello, my fans, friends. Welcome to the Rich Terring podcast feed, powered by ACAS Plus. Thanks to everyone who's come to see the Can I Have My Ball Back tour so far. It's been going really well. I've got a four-star review in The Standard, four-star review in The Telegraph, who once called me the worst comedy experience of the year, so that's a turnaround. Uh, people have been coming, people have really been enjoying it, and it's getting better and better. The only gigs this week are both in Pocklington, the town I was born in, near York. Uh, there's a couple of tickets left for the evening show and a few more tickets left for the matinee, I think about 4.30. But love to see you there, Yorkshire. Pop along. Check richardherring.com slash ballback slash tour or richardherring.com slash gigs to see if I'm coming near to you. There are tickets left for nearly every show in the tour. I think Norwich has sold out. Uh, and a couple of gigs in London could do with your support as well. Anyway, please listen to the podcast. Do spread the news about the podcast to your friends. Listen as much as you can. Numbers are slightly down, which may affect the future of this podcast. So just leave it playing, even if you're not in the room. Love you. <laughs> now sit back, relax and enjoy whatever it is you're going to listen to. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, older shots. Welcome to the Prince's Theatre. Please welcome a man who can't believe he's in the town that Tim from The Office was born in. It's Richard Herring! Thank you very much. Hello, Aldershot. You're much better than last week's audience, although actually that audience is from sometime in the future, as it happens. Anyway, it gets confusing. Welcome to Richard Herring, Larry Soldier's Threatening Podcast. Oh, yeah. Uh, though I was uh, hanging around at the Museum of Military Medicine uh, today. It's the number three attraction on TripAdvisor in Aldershot, which should give you some idea of how many things there are to do in Aldershot. And a dummy of a man from World War II with a head wound said he called it Rehelestopus. I don't know if that's going to catch on. Um, I sometimes look at the, uh, the local news... Uh, on the day of recording in the town I'm going to. You, uh, some places you don't really ever want to talk about what that is because it's proper horrible stuff. Uh, in Aldershot, there, were, there was... The first page came up with, uh, with tweets from all the main news sources in Aldershot. All three news stories were about shoplifters. And there were three different shoplifters. So it's, that's, there's a lot of... That is not fair. There was also one about some drug dealing. So that, that's... Um, that's that's older shot. Uh, and, uh, yeah, Tim from The Office was born here. You put a Tim from The Office in it, he's not in there anymore, is he? He's moved. Um, the darts player, I can't read my own writing, James... Wade, Wade of course. Yeah. 
uh, and the ex-husband of Katie Price, Alex Reed. That is, those are the three, the three celebrities, one of whose celebrity is based on being not even the current husband of someone. But there we go. So um, it's lovely to be here amongst uh, you wonderful people. My guest this week, we're going to do a book club, live book club. We will talk about some other things as well. Uh, it's written a fantastic book, but he is probably principally known for being the crowd of Liberty City in Grand Theft Auto 4. The whole crowd. That is at least according to IMDb. I'm not convinced that's true, but we're going to find out. Will you please welcome the amazing Adam Bloom, ladies and gentlemen. It's Adam Bloom. TV's Adam Bloom. Adam Bloom from Grand Theft Auto. Hello. Got a nice man bag. Can I just say thanks for staying? <laughs> I was a bit worried because it would be me, Rich, and a woman from Canada. <laughs> uh, lovely to see you. And uh, is, that, is that you in the, the voice of Liberty City in Grand Theft Auto? No. Um, oh. Occasionally, people get things wrong about you that you yeah. don't mind. Right. Because that's one of the biggest budget things in the world. They, I think they profit more than Bond films, the Grand yeah. Theft Autos. So I thought, yeah, that's, I won't contact them. Because <laughs> it says, as Adam W. Bloom as well, which makes me think, that was what made me think, you know, and also, why would you be the crowd in Liberty City? What? Uh, one person played a crowd? Uh, yeah, I guess. I guess he oh. was a, a very versatile actor. Two's company, one's a crowd. <laughs> as it turns out. Um, look, let's talk a little bit about you before we get on uh, to, the, to the book. Uh, you obviously have been a, a stand-up comedian for many years. 30 years. 30 years. Uh, and uh, I remember us uh, being in, in Edinburgh in the 90s, uh, a lot of seeing you there a lot of the time. And you were, you know, you were really being heralded as like the next... I think you got a deal with Universal, didn't you? For I got a three-year retainer with Universal when I was 28 years old. Wow. Yeah. But it didn't happen. <laughs> but you got the deal... And you did fantastic Edinburgh, sort of award-winning Edinburgh shows. You were in a show that I've talked about to a couple of the cast before, I think, um, Asylum. Do, does anyone know what that is? Yeah. It, was a, it, it was a sitcom with Simon Pegg, Jessica Stevenson, Jessica Hine now, I believe. Edgar Wright directed it, and I was 25 years old. I couldn't believe I'd been doing comedy two years. I'm in a sitcom. And it was on the Paramount Channel, so not many people saw it. But that's where those three, Jessica, Simon and Edgar, met. And they gravitate towards each other. And it was just amazing watching their brains. They just had this clique. Yeah. And um, it's, on, it's all on YouTube. And Norman Lovett from Red Dwarf's in it. Um, David Williams was a script editor. It's Julian Barrett. Julian Barrett from The Bush is in it. It's a ridiculous hotbed of t- unknown talent. Yeah. Simon was the only one who was well-known at the time. Right. Where is he now? And, uh, <laughs> <coughs> it's, an amazing, it's sort of one of those things, isn't it, where... You, where... There was a lot of shows like this where the, where there was a group of people who would go on to be mm. amazingly successful, and you know, and say, well, you know, and Tim from the Office is a good example as a, as a local boy uh, who you know got into the office, and that became that was the one that took off. But he'd been in a show called Bruiser, I think, beforehand or something like that. He'd been in a, one of those sketch shows with an amazing cast, which included David Mitchell and all sorts of people. This is Martin Freeman, yeah, who's Tim from the Office, whose cousin is a comedian called Ben Norris. Have any of you heard of him? One of the best improvisers I've okay. ever seen. By the way, these are very focals. I, I don't need them only for reading. Here's my... Fa- oh, fuck it. Say it out. There you go. <laughs> you're, you're bald. Uh, have I ruined the magic? <laughs> is it... Was, what was it... Let's just briefly talk about that. Because what was it like to... Is it, is it difficult to 
see that that everyone else going on to be film stars. And I mean, I know you love being a stand-up comedian, so I know it's not that difficult. But I, I was saying this the other day to someone. I'm I'm immune to bitterness because I love my work so much. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. I make a living, and I make an okay living. I don't make a massive living, but I make an okay living. But I do. I've done what I've wanted to do since I was nine years old for thirty years. So I'm happy. And um, I didn't want to be a film star anyway. This is the thing, there's a comedy festival in Mont- Montreal called Just for Laughs, and I did a show called New Faces, and we we're about to go on stage, and they were, they were building us up. This is such a high-profile gig. There were projector screens above you for the balcony to watch, where you're performing live to this audience, and above you there's a balcony with Hollywood agents and, you know, people, uh, film people. They want to see what it looked like on the screen. So they're not even watching your gig, they're watching on the screen. Yeah, yeah. And this guy was going, this is your big break, this is your big break. Do you want to be playing clubs and th- theatres for the rest of your life? I went, yeah. <laughs> why, do you want, why do you have to want to be on television if you're a comedian? You might, I mean, obviously TV leads to be, more people come to you. Like Lee Mack's done a huge deal. Lee Mack's one of my top five comedians. Of course, television leads you to that. But doing what you love live sh- shouldn't not... You, you shouldn't have to want to be in a, in a film. No. Well, it's interesting with, the, with Montreal as well, is it's, you know, it's very... It's, it felt like when, I, when we went there, if we went there a few times... We did 98. 98, that's right, yeah. Uh, and, uh, it, no, it just feels like a lot of actors auditioning for us. It comes, they've come together, they've got seven minutes, and they'll, and they'll you know, they'll, they'll... It's so scripted that if, if they make a mistake, they go back and start again. Right? <laughs> oh, how awkward is that? Yeah, so... Hold yeah. on. How awkward is that? <laughs> and, uh, the, the, the seven minute sets they often do, they make sure they do an act out that shows their acting ability. Yeah. And it's almost like that, like you said, that seven minute set is not about the best comedy they can do. It's about a, a, a calling card for industry. And that's not pure, is it? No. Um, and I think uh, we'll get on to the, let's, let's mention the book. I mean, it's, I, A, I think it's very interesting. You knew you wanted to be a comedian since you were nine years old. I mean, I think I was, I, I, did as well, I think. Although I don't know if it was stand-up, I knew I would. I wanted to. You, you know, knew I, you were funny. I knew I loved funny people. I knew and right. loved making people laugh. And I wanted. I think like at the age of four, I wanted to be a clown. You know, that was the closest oh. it could be to, to 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 what it was. But yeah, so I knew that was what I was interested in. Though it didn't feel like it could possibly happen. Did it feel when you were nine that it was a realistic possibility? So it's. I don't want to make it sound conceited, but I, I knew at nine I was going to be a comedian. I didn't hope one day I would. And when I did my first gig, it was a bit like when someone comes out the closet to their friends and family and suddenly this weight's off the shoulders because it's like, I'm now doing what I wanted to do. But I've been sacked from every job I've had apart from one. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, and that's when my mum was the manager. <laughs> <laughs> and I was asked to leave. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, it didn't, you know, I don't, really, I don't really fit in a conventional, you know, you think a lot of people who do an unusual job who are, or some people who are very talented, they can't do anything else. Yeah. You know. Well, and, you know, I love the, I mean, I love comedians and I love the world of comedy and there's some, there's some bad things about it and there are some bad people in comedy right. as we're discovering. Uh, but, uh, but mainly it's, you know, it's, it is weirdly because it's got a reputation as being you know, a very competitive and, you know, backstabbing world. But I feel like it's, it's a place that welcomes people who might not be welcome in, in other jobs and who, who might struggle in other life, in, you know, in other... Yeah, it's, the, the two things I like about when I'm around comedians is we're all slight misfits. Yeah. And you're in a dress room of, of people who are all dysfunctional and they all, they've all bonded over one thing, and that is they're funny. And they had the guts, the confidence to go on first. Because your first gig, that's the biggest step you ever make. That you've never been on stage. Will it work? That at least when you've done your first gig, it goes well. You now know that there's a chance other ones will go well. They, I mean, they obviously don't, but you, <laughs> you know they can do, right? Yeah. So everyone in that room has made that leap to do it. 
which is a, a very bold leap. It's like jumping out of an airplane, isn't it? Yeah. And they've also found their tribe in the sense that, we, you know, no one judges them. There's such, such ridiculous eccentrics in our industry, like Paul Foote. Yeah. Um, Simon Munnery. Yes. Must be a good friend of yours. Is, yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, so it's, it's beautiful. This world of people that found out they can do one thing better than anything else, and that's make people laugh. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And, and, and you know, you've got this book you've written is, is extraordinary. It's called Finding Your Comic Genius. I mean, it's specifically targeted... Well, it's for, you know, it's, it's for people who want to perform. It's probably for people who've already started performing, really, right? Yeah, so all books on stand-up comedy that I've researched are about how to do it. And I, I find it a little bit like, you know, step one, make sure you do this. You know, I find it a little bit basic. Um, and they're... Some of them are very good, but no one's, done a, no one's written a book aimed at people who already do stand-up. So it's an in-depth guide. <clears throat> so it's going deeper and deeper and deeper than I think anyone's ever gone, writ, has ever written about the art of stand-up. I think that's true. I mean, you are someone who obviously is, is very dedicated to comedy and has thought very hard about stuff. And I think most of us, you know, do to some extent, are, are somewhere along that journey. I think a lot of co- being a comedian is quite instinctive, right? So that with this book, you are actually delving down into how a joke works and what makes a joke work and how to improve jokes, I think, which is the... You know, so I think a lot of the things I've... You know, a lot of the things I'm reading in this, I'm sort of going, oh, I, you know, do I do that instinctively? Do I know that? I, d- I definitely haven't thought about it. It is a very deep, deep dive. And, you know, and I think, as you say, new people could get it, maybe read the stuff about writing first and then come back to the rest of it once you've done a few gigs. Yes, well, I, I, there's 32 chapters and I labelled all the ones about writing in brackets, writing, so you could just go to those ones if you've never been on stage. Because once you've been on stage a few times, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, so many layers to what's going on in the air around you that you couldn't explain to someone. Like, you have a sixth sense, don't you? Yeah. You develop a sixth sense. <coughs> I see bored people. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> So you, you can't, you know, any job, any of your jobs, you know how many layers there are. The more you learn, the more you learn. There's more to, it's, it's never ending. So the, the performance chapters would confuse people if they've been on stage before. And that's why I say either read the chapters on writing or make notes on the bits you don't understand. But going back to it 20 gigs in, it will make sense. Yeah. And um, the, the, can I just say why, what allowed me to be able to write this book? Yeah. So I've ghostwritten for over 50 people. And, and some of them are globally well-known. And I never get credit. I don't want to get credit. It's like being a stunt double. You, you know, they look good and that's my job, right? But when people have said to me, why did you change that? I've gone, well, there's this kind of balance on a punchline where it's like a seesaw. You have more syllables on one side of the pause than the other. And I've realised that these patterns really do exist. So when other people read the book and they go, I get emails from all around the world because my emails are addressed in the book, and they go, oh, I added a seesaw, here's the before and after, and the rhythm works. And it's like, the only reason I worked out the seesaw theory, which is one of about 27 new phrases I've coined yeah. because there weren't words for things. There weren't words for boom-like moments or, or a book ending. So the, the point is that when you write for somebody else, you learn to articulate things that you've never really thought about. Like, if I ask you all that to um, ask some, tell someone how to tie their shoelace over the phone without shoelaces in your hand, you couldn't do it, right? And yet you do it 10,000 times in your life, right? Yeah. You, you lift that one and hold it there. I mean, down the phone... It, it would be hard, right? So what I've realised is I've got this ability. It's not just I have a forensic understanding of comedy just the way my brain works, you know, slightly maybe on the spectrum or slightly, you know, that, just a slightly odd brain. So I understand it. I've learned to describe very, very intricate things that I've never heard discussed ever and put them in words accurately. And anything that, didn't, that I felt was getting a bit convoluted, 
I would email my 80-year-old mum, who's not a comedian, and went, what do you think of this? And she went, yep, completely get it. And once she went, you lost me towards the end, so I changed it. I think I just chopped it down a bit. But I was making sure this is completely digestible for everyone who's at least reasonably intelligent. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, and it, it is... Well, I'm fascinated by it as, you know, as a... You know, again, I've worked for as many years as you have as a comedian. And, you know, certainly in the last sort of 20 years, I've been doing solo stand-up. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it becomes... As you're touring, you're sort of doing these things, you know, I think with, with an instinct. But, uh, but what I love about touring now, and I didn't like it in the first... When I was touring, you know, if I got to a place, say, Aldershot... Uh, and it wasn't going down very well, I would put, to be honest, more like Farnham. Is it Farnham or Farham near this? One of those places where I'd, I would just put my head down and, and rattle through it. And then I got, I got a bit more experience. When, oh, no, I've got to work harder in these gigs. I've got to get the, I've got to get the audience. I've got to read the mood. And I've got, to, I've got to find how to make every line hit. And so, you know, you use a tour. You've got a tour show, and then you use the tour to just refine and refine and refine. And that's what this book is, is sort of about, but with, with sort of extra, like the magic tricks. But if, I, know, I know you you are a magician as well, right? Or you're my, interested. my hobby's close up magic, yeah. yeah. So there is a lot of similarities. I talked to um, uh, the, the guys, um, Jeremy Dyson and Andy Nyman, obviously are both in the magic circle about this and have written lots of books about magic. But there is a big similarity between comedy there and are, magic. There are loads. The main one is misdirection because you get an audience to think you're going to say something else and you word it in a way that they will never see the twist coming. And then the twist comes. The thing about close-up magic is if, if, if a magician puts a coin from one hand to the other and it isn't in that hand, if you see a flash of silver in the wrong hand, there's no magic, right? Yeah. With misdirection in comedy, you can still get away with second-rate misdirection because people go, I think I know where this going, but no, yeah. And sometimes you reward yourself because you guess where it was going and you still laugh. Yeah. With magic, if there's a mistake in the misdirection, there is no magic. So I trained with very meticulous rules for how I'm going to write a joke because it had to be perfect. Now, jokes don't have to be perfect, but it's great if they are, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it is, it's just interesting to, you know, I, I read the book and I just thought, am I doing this enough? Am I being perfectionist enough? I mean, I think you, you, know, you have a very analytic brain, you have a very perfectionist brain, and it's absolutely, you want, you know, even if a joke's working, can I make it work better? Sometimes you dick around with a joke and you completely fuck it up, right? Sometimes a joke's working and you think, but what if I try this? And then you never quite get it back again. Because sometimes, sometimes it is as magical as, you know, as, as a pause or, you know, it's not necessarily what's in the joke. It's, there's, there's, there's extra things. There's, yes, and there are layers you can't even see. Yeah, and, so, and sometimes it's, an, you know, it, it, it transcends anything I think you could even write about. But, yeah, you, it's always worth looking. But I think that you talk about the idea of, writing your stuff down and trying to look for toppers for, you know, just try and write some extra top, which is just an extra joke on top of the joke. Yeah, well, can I talk about, can I yeah. talk about that? Yeah. So, yeah, so a topper is a punchline on top of a punchline, which is very economical because you've done the setup, then they laugh, and then you do another punch, they laugh again. And my record's five in a row, and it's great because on the fifth one, it just, they're just helpless like that because you go, bang, 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 right? Um, Scott Capuro, have any of you seen Scott Capuro? If you watch Scott Capuro, he has no setups. Everything he says is a short... It's ridiculous. It's so economical. If you watch a laborious setup, one half laugh, then... You know, sometimes you want to set up a whole lot of information, then there's a half laugh, and then one other laugh, and then they change the subject. You go, did you tell me all of that (laughs) just to get that one laugh, right? So the... Which ironically, I've just done with the description of it. Um, (laughs) So the point is that... uh, uh, um, 
when I had three Radio 4 series, it's called The Problem with Adam Bloom, it was a long time ago, and um, the producers had to write everything out. Now, 95% of it was material I'd written brand new for each themed show, but occasionally I'd slip in a bit of existing material. So when I was writing out the, exist- the existing material, which was so laborious, you're going, I've said this a thousand times on stage, literally hundreds of times, right? And I'm having to write it out. When I started writing it out, because my mind wandered, because I knew the words I was writing, I didn't have to focus on them, my mind wandered, and often, as you know, material comes to you while your mind wanders, right? So I was wondering whilst writing down the specific joke. So I would daydream about the joke and then think of a topper. What better time to think of a joke than while you're writing it down? Yeah. So I found out that writing... To, so in the book, I, you know, people are reading me and we go, oh, my God, my material's getting toppers and toppers and toppers. I completely fluked that. You know, most things that are brilliant ideas weren't intended to be, you know. Yeah. Viagra wasn't supposed to give me an erection, was it? No. no. COVID-19 wasn't supposed to give me an erection. Um, <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> So, so that's one of a hundred methods. Yeah. But right, you know, staring at a blank screen um, is the hardest way to come up with something funny. Yeah, it's the hardest way, right? So yeah. I've just got methods for getting around that problem and, and methods for getting the ball rolling. But existing material improving is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And that thing you talked about, the the thing that um, that magical thing, because you might change one word and a joke falls apart. You don't know why. Um, the worst one for me is when you try a joke out and it. Absolutely destroys, absolutely that rooms in stitch. The best feeling, there is, the, the single best feeling as a comedian is a brand new bit of material, absolutely killing, right? It's the best feeling. Then you do it the second time, it doesn't work, yeah. right? And you go, what did I do? I don't know what I did. Was it eyebrow raised? What did I, don't know what I did. Do it again, it doesn't work. And I've, maybe six or seven times, I've had a joke that kills and it's never, ever worked again. Yeah. It's a horrible feeling. Well, it's that because I, I improvise a lot on stage right. and then whether you, and I just trust I'll remember it the next night if it's good enough. It'll come back to me. And sometimes it, you know, it doesn't. Sometimes it, I guess you don't remember exactly. Because we, you, don't, you, need, you need to get the lead up to it right. You know, maybe it's back referencing something else. But even if it's just the line itself, if you get anything out of place. I was saying backstage in Talking Cock, there was a joke that I did like maybe 80 times. And it got a little laugh. And I thought, this joke's good. Why is this joke not working? And I changed the word. And I think it was generally like I changed... Like something like the word prick to cock. It was as, as little as that. I mean, it was a show all about cocks. Uh, but it was, you know, it was as little as that. And then it just was fantastic ever after. And, there were, and it was a joke. It was a word in the middle. It wasn't a word that was, you know, it was, it made no sense. But it completely, it completely changed it. And what made you instinctively do that then? I don't know. I just thought this joke isn't working. I've got to dick around with this until, or cock around with it. See? Uh, until, <laughs> <laughs> until it works. And that's, you know, but, you are, but there is, you know, it, it is, I mean, as much as this, I think this book will be really helpful to people and I think it, and I think it'll be really helpful to me. I'm, you know, I'm thinking about loads of the stuff in it already. Uh, I think there, you, there has to be a spark there. You're not going to read this book and, and be able to just get up on stage and, and write an amazing set. There's got to be something there. And there has to be an instinct and there has to be, you find, and as you say as well, even with rules... You can completely do the opposite of everything you say, and it might work for you. So All there's rules no, there's, are made to be broken, but yeah, especially the, in comedy, there's no yeah. Rule. But their rules are made are broken by people who understand why they're breaking yeah, them, exactly. and that's the difference. There are things like um, I talk about bloom pops, which is the moment the audience get the joke, and I like them to be on the last word so that there's no leakage. If, the, if people know what you're going to say halfway through the center, they've got to wait to laugh, and then the, the balloon leaks. So to me, you're blowing up a balloon and gets popped at the right moment. Now you know it's awful when we get the joke too early and we're waiting to laugh, right? And that, that takes the energy out of the room. Now, 
Jeff Green, or would you do, do you know who Jeff Green is? English comedian. He used to pop his balloons halfway through the sentence, and as a new comedian, I was going, what is it different about him? I don't know what it is. What he does is, he has the leak word halfway through the sentence, but he mumbles underneath it, so he lets you laugh because he's finished talking by mumbling, right? right? That's breaking the rule. But he knows why he's breaking the rule. Yeah. When I watch people who pop the balloons mid-sentence and the joke gets a half laugh because we've got the joke too early, there's no, there's no explosive moment. They're breaking the rule and not even knowing the rule exists. So yeah. I think, you, you know, when, of course people break, look at Harry Hill, just a whole load of non-secretaries, right? Uh, there's nothing in that book that says these are the... How, like, a lot of like, comedy courses go, oh, you've got to go, talk about your ethnicity at the beginning or, you know, all these kind of yeah. where you're from and, you know, it's just so tedious, you know, so many <laughs> people... You know, I'd like to see a Jamaican-born English orphan comedian so I don't have to sit for an impression of his parents. Now... <laughs> <laughs> But, but the point is that these rules um, in these books, I can't stand that. And there's no... The only rules I'm talking about in my book, uh, they're more like chords, that I've worked out some of the musical chords of comedy. So it's not going, you've got to do this, you've got to stand like this, you've got to do that, because of course not. There'll be no Harry Hill, there'll be no Sean Locke, there'll be no Mitch Hedberg if people followed rules. But what I am showing you is, under the surface, these things make things work. And if you're not doing this, you might notice, oh, yeah, a bookend that works like this. I, I had some... E equals MC squared moments while I was writing the book, because I was writing bullet points down about how a method works of repetition of a word on the punchline where the same word is said twice and it same word there. I worked out four things. I went to write down three. And so I had E equals MC I'm going, I'm getting real excited here. And then I emailed Rich Hall, who Rich Hall is as good a stand-up I've ever seen in my life. And I emailed him and said, can I have permission to quote this bit of yours? And have I got the wording right? Because it's quite a long bit. And he wrote back and said, I think I need to read this book. You said stuff about comedy I didn't even realise, right? I skipped around my living room for about 20 minutes. <laughs> constantly, constantly. This is, when he came over to England in 1995, I just couldn't believe that someone could be that good at stand-up. Everything, Mo from The Simpsons was based on ritual. Yeah. So I, I could, so, so I wrote back to him and said, look, can I quote that? And he said, yeah, I'll put it in the third person. It's on the back of the book, along with quotes from Ricky Gervais, Jim Jeffries and Harry Hill. But the point is, when Ritual said that, I did not expect for a second that someone I'd been looking up to, he came over with an Emmy under his belt in 95. That's when I got excited, because you can't look at your own work subjectively. I started to tingle sometimes, go, I think I've written something incredibly good. But I can't know that because it, I, I, it's me reading it. But then things yeah. like Ritual saying that, I was like, okay, something special's come out. And then when it came out and it's got, you know, I don't know, it's like something like 67 five-star views out of 69 or something, 72. There's two fours. Oh, can I tell you, my mum emailed me because my mum keeps a check-up on it, right? <laughs> Let me get this right. So my mum was waiting for me to get to 50 because when you get to 50 reviews... Uh, you get recommended to people by other products. Right. Okay. So my mum, you know, she's retired and she's checking up. She goes, oh, it's 42 now. And then I got an email from my mum, an 80-year-old mum, and she said, it's reached 50. So it's all fives, all fives. And she went, it's reached 50. Well, 51, because some cunt's giving it four stars. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? And... You know those things that make you chuckle whenever you think about them or you look, look back at a picture and it makes you chuckle like that? I've looked at that email maybe 15 times over the last week or so and I've chuckled every single time. Because <laughs> what's love is like, four stars are good review, yeah. right? That's a good review. 
You know, Steve Bennett and Chortle has reviewed my animal shows three times. I've had a four every time. And I've got, thank God I didn't get a three, yeah. right? Or a two or a one. Yeah. Four's a good review. Yes. <laughs> so I just thought it was a wonderful... <laughs> yeah, it's a wonderful sentence. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think, you know, I think, I think anyone who's, who's interested in performing comedy will definitely get something out. And I, I definitely think veterans will as well. It is about being perfection. You know, I think it is it, what that we're saying. Like, even if a joke's getting a laugh... If it can get a better laugh, it can get a bigger laugh, it can get a sustained laugh, if it can lead on to more laughs. You know, and, and I think with comedy, it's, a lot of it's just getting on and doing. People like, like email me and say, how do I become a stand-up or what do I do? And you just have to get up and do it. Yeah, you learn um, while you do it. You yeah. learn from doing it. And so, you know, you'll, you'll gauge that. And I think it is, you sort of, you'd understand, again, just through experience, you can feel where you're losing an audience, you can feel where the audience are wrapped, you know, you can feel where the audience are there's someone in row 14 who's, you know, te- texting someone at the moment, you know. I've seen him. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he suddenly put his phone away. Uh, you know, you've got that sort of... When you're really on it, A, you've got that sense of everything that's going on. You're really in control of the room and you've got it. But you also, you know, you, you find this... I, you know, I'm fascinated when you find that white heat of just something you've been struggling to express just suddenly comes out perfectly... In performance. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. But this is, the, this is why I don't like these... You can become... There's one that's like, you can become a comedian in one week. And it's like, no, you can't. You know, I met Eddie Izzard in the street the day after my second gig, just by chance, in Piccadilly Circus. And um, I asked him for some advice. He said, well, you can't call yourself a comedian until you've done 100 gigs. And I counted. And about 75, I got that sixth sense that I talked about. You could just read... Just read the room. You can feel them warming to you. Feel them going off you. You know, yeah. when you lose your virginity, you just... Do it in that position. You don't have to start changing positions on the first time, do you? Just going through the Karma Sutra. Um, you know, you just do it once and you just can't believe, you know, that you're, you, you, that when I lost my virginity, all I was thinking was how I was going to tell my friends about it the next day, right? I was preparing the thing. You won't believe this, guys. Don't believe this, guys. Um, and, but, but, you know, you don't experiment because you just yeah. can't believe you're doing it. That's it. But then you start, you know, it's, it's like doing that, but then you start to think on your feet and you change. You know, I don't have an agenda where I've gone on stage. I've got my, all my material, um, but I would pluck it out in the order that suits me on any... You know, I could do two gigs in one night and they're different gigs, but I didn't go on intended to do different gigs. I just how I felt, like a wardrobe or, or your clothes on holiday. Um, you change your clothes for the mood depending on the weather yeah. or depending on your mood. And then you've got clothes you wear regularly. I've got, I, you know, I've got six pairs of shoes. I live in these ones. And I've got shoes I never wear, right? And I've yeah. got, you know, seasonal stuff. It's, that's how it is. But when you're starting out, you just remember the words. And by the way, there's anyone here who wants to do stand-up, and statistically there must be a few... You, first of all, you just have to do it. You book it in, and then you've got that countdown or whatever, it's a week or two or three or month even, to just prepare your stuff and record it and play it back and say it in the mirror and just remember it and, and do it. And then you might find you've discovered this wonderful thing. Because I can't... I couldn't bear the idea of being on my deathbed and wondering what it had been like if I had done the thing I wanted to do since I was nine years old. Because yeah. life is short. We all know life is short. And um, so, yeah, you have to do it. And I just want people... I know this is being... This isn't just the 500 people here. It's also the... Other 300 at home. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I know it's got a huge listenership. And I just, you know, I, I want to, people to realise that. And this is not about plugging a book. This is that you don't need the book to your first gig. In fact, the, you're not the target market at all. This is not about me selling my book. This is about sending someone, you have to do your first gig. I go to small towns and there's a guy in the back of the room or a woman in the back of the room. And they come up to him and say, I'm thinking about doing stand-up. But I give them all my advice. And it's, you know, you've done the same thing a hundred times. Yeah. I come back a year later and I say, oh, did you do your first gig? And they go, no. Why not? Well, my wife's had a kid or I got a promotion. Or there's all these excuses. You know, Michael McIntyre was apparently had bailiffs knocking on his door. <laughs> he had a new baby 
And he went on to become the biggest, you know, wealthiest comedian in the country with all those pressures. A lot of yeah. people go, I better get a job. I've got bellies knocking on my door. He didn't. He pursued it and pursued it. And that probably fueled him to do better because he needed the money rather than, you know... But you, you can't make excuses. You, you, and this applies to any, anything. And the thing about stand-up is you don't have to get a degree. You don't, you don't need budget for it. You know, I, I always admire people who write films and they go, they spent two years writing this film and, they, and then they've got to try and raise the money to get it made and even then only a few people are going to see it. With a stand-up, you think of an idea and you say it, there's no budget. You can do a joke about a dinosaur and it costs no more than a joke about a peanut, right? Yeah. And, the, and um, sort of anyone's allergic to dinosaurs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, so is it, it, what a wonderful art form that there's no one else involved. There's no one to blame. As long as they can see you and they can hear you and they're sober, there's no one to blame but you. Yeah, it's true. You've got to have that determination and I think that most comedians have that determination. I mean, I think with you, there was nothing else you were ever going to do. You know, I think that just, that, you know, you knew so early and also you were so driven towards that that you, you know, you would have, you would have been a comedian in some degree, yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever it was going to be. But yeah, it is, I mean, I think it's also, like, I've written a blog every day for 23 years. Wow. Uh, wow. And every single day. And that is amazing because there'll be, you know, there'll be weeks pass by when nothing very funny happens. Christmas but, day, even Christmas yeah, day. Yeah, every day. Four, four every day. So like, I might do a couple in, you know, a couple in a day if I've missed one. I but mean, like but... on the drive, on the drive here, I, wrote, I, I, you know. But also, if you do it, you get a stream of consciousness. And I almost got the beginning of uh, yes, yesterday. I was, you weren't writing while you were driving. Were you? I wasn't. I was being driven. I was. Uh, I was. I was. Uh, yesterday, I did a, a. I was talking to a dentist for a, for a thing for this podcast for a, a, an insert for this podcast, and she, I had to eat an apple. And I said, "Oh, I love apples." She said, "Apples are actually quite bad for your." teeth because they've got uh, the acidic and they can wear away your enamel so be careful don't don't eat too many apples and i just on on, on the drive here i start thinking you know an, oh an apple a day keeps the doctor away but it you know actually gets it means you if you have an apple a day you have to go to the dentist maybe also. the dentist started that rumor. <laughs> yeah exactly but you know i'd rather see a doctor than a dentist you know the dentist is worse than doctor and then you sort of then you make the connection you go why do you give your teacher you give a teacher an apple. Why, the, why is the, there are so many professions where apples are relevant to them? So you know, you start suddenly. You, if you just, stream of consciousness. you know, you just have this stream of consciousness, and you think there's something in. You know, that's the, that's the very beginning of it. But there's some, there's something in that maybe as an, as a, as a, that might become a routine or might become an idea. I like the idea that kids, kids dentists, children are giving their yeah. teachers apples to get them to send the dentist. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I say a funny thought about? You know, when I've always found fishnet stockings very sexy. And I realised how much I found sex the other day because I got hard on ripping open a bag of Zatzumas. <laughs> <laughs> Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I mean, you've got, I mean, you know, you, I'm not great at writing gags and you are amazing at writing gags. And this book explains why, but, you know, explains your processes. And I guess a lot, you know, as you say, a lot of this is in writing the book, you've learned yourself how you do it. You know, you've opened up the the engine and, you know, tinkered around and gone, oh, that's why this, this works, because it's connected to this. So There's it's... nothing more exciting for the, for the process of writing a book than realising you've just found out more about what you're talking about. A bit like the top is you're, you're typing and you go, oh, yeah. that, you know, I'm not going to say oh, it just occurred to me, you know, the, the four things about bookending, but yeah. there are a few things. And I was writing for somebody while I was writing the book and there was a, there was a, something, there was a, a punchline that was full of soft sounds, but they couldn't, the, the, the last... Have I changed the subject? Sorry. No, sorry. Oh, OK. So the, it was all soft sounds, but the last word was a celebrity's name, which was a soft sound. And if we... If there's a soft sound at the end, I will move the words around so there's a hard one at the end. But by moving the celebrity's name forward, that would leak it and there'd be a balloon leak before the punchline. And we couldn't change the last word, which is what I'd like to do normally, because it's a celebrity's name. So we had a catch-22. Right. So I discovered a way of putting a hard syllable, one short hard syllable early on, which acted like an anchor to an all-soft sound. Right. And I've realised, I'm going, I, I'm putting 30 years' knowledge into one book. It's 100,000 words. And I'm realising new things as I'm writing it. So I better finish this book quickly, or else I'm never going to finish it. But the point is to be always learning. And what a wonderful thing to always be learning. And I watched Rich Hall the other day dealing with a heckler, and I was like... Wow, what a method. I've never thought that. Yeah. And of course, the audience just saw a good comedian being in control. But I'm watching under the surface going, I've been doing this 30 years and I've never seen that, never done it, never thought of it doing it that way. You know, it's watching a master at work. Yeah. And you don't have to be a comedian to know you're in the presence of a master. You just don't know why they're a master. You just go, this is masterful, right? Yeah, That's the sure. beautiful thing about any other profession. We look at it from the inside. But some, you know, when you watch a great comedian, you know you're watching a great comedian. You don't have to understand comedy. You just go... This is brilliant. You don't know why it's brilliant. You just go, that made me laugh more than anyone else. So, you know, you're being stimulated and your imagination's you know, just overwhelming you. But when you do it, you can understand under the surface what that is. I talk about something called triple punches. When you're being hit three times, you're getting a, a visual image, a cerebral connection in your brain, and an emotional uh, um, hit. And if they happen on one word, on one word... Can I give an example? Yeah. yeah. So, Rich Hall, the, the joke I asked Rich Hall to... Um, uh, quote, so I can't do his voice, okay, but he, he, you know he's got a gruff voice, right? He said, um, I'm just going to do it as me, right? He said, every Christmas, I used to um, spend hours making my mum a present. And then one year, I wrapped under the tree, and the next morning, she picked up and she shook it. She went, oh, what is it? I said, oh, it's a picture of the Last Supper on a netcher sketch right? <laughs> Beautiful, right? Beautiful, right? Now... That's a triple punch because everything happens on the word etch sketch yeah. Everything. You don't know what it is until the... the, the, uh, the uh, that's the, the cerebral connection you make, right? The visual image of the last supper on etch sketch is beautiful, right? 13 people, um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, the, the iconic image. And then you have the empathy because you realise how much work he's put into it. Now, he instinctively structured that joke so all three things happen on the same word. He didn't analyse it because we talked about it 
But what he did do was do it. Yeah. And whether you do something instinctively brilliant or you understand, you see, I like to think I do things instinctively well, but what I do is I then slow it down and look closer afterwards to make sure it could be, make, if it could be better, see if it could be better. Or, more importantly, understand why it works so you don't change it for the worse. I've watched comedians do a joke the second time I've seen them do it, and I've gone, they, you missed out that bit. Yeah. They, they don't even remember doing it. I'm like, you definitely did. They go, no, I didn't. I go, I promise you, I have got a very good memory for detail like this. You've, you've, your joke has devolved over time. I've seen, I've seen um, when we had DVDs and VHSs, I've seen footage of it the first time, time I've done something on television, and I've done that joke for two years, and it's devolved because I've forgotten why it's good. Yeah. And that's horrible. They watch it and go, God, I should be doing it like that now. I've, yeah. That's probably happened to me ten times. Sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, it is, it's, it is fascinating. I think if you're interested in this, it's fascinating to take it apart. It, I don't think the book... I mean, I don't, you know, I, as you say, I don't think audiences are necessarily going to read it, so, you know, so it wouldn't... But even if they did, it wouldn't spoil... It's, it's not like a magic circle book of here's how you do tricks. It's just this, these are tools that will help you and a way, of under, a way of understanding that will help you. And I think, you know, the, the ultimate thing is just be perfection. You know, don't give up on anything. Try and make it as, you know, economical as it needs to be, as it can be yeah. for, most, for most things. But again, occasionally not. But, uh... And nice sounds in the setups. You know, some yeah. people have a setup that's just, I was walking down the street and I went into Greg's and there was a person behind the counter. Duh, duh, duh. These are just, you know, you can make it interesting all the way through. You can yeah. have nice, nice sounds. You know, that lovely thing about having flow on a punchline or, or funny sound. I mean, etch sketch is a funny word, last word, bang, and it's nostalgic. But... You know, you, you use funny sounds in punchlines because you want it to sound well and flow. You can have, you can have nice sounds in setups, and that, that puts some garnish in the bits that aren't interesting. You can trim jokes down so that we get to the funny bit quicker, and then you put some funny sounds in. You can put some tension in. You can say something controversial so the audience aren't sure if you're about to be racist or, gen- or sexist or transphobic, and then it turns out you're not, but there's that relief that, oh, God, thank God he wasn't going to be horrible. And putting tension, nice words, trimming a joke down... Far more interesting to watch than someone just going, I was walking down the street and I said this, no, that. Long, long setup, then half life, long, long setups. You know, it, comedy can be very lazy. Yeah. Yeah, well, you've, you're great about that. I love the stuff about uh, virtual comedy where people do stuff where they, where they, well, either they, it's a joke already or they, 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 they are trying to interpret or they're just saying something they've seen that's funny. It's, it, that's very interesting. Making fun of something that's already a joke is a classic. I did a Twitter rant once and you went, oh, Adam Bloom's Twitter feed is quite interesting today. Do you remember? Yeah. I did a whole load of... So, so people make fun of things that are intended to be funny. And I, I'm trying to think of the example in the book. Oh, yeah, do you, do you know the original source shower gel? And it said, um, so, so they go, um, oh, I saw some shower gel the other day. And it said, 7,928 mint leaves were made into this bottle. And I thought, ooh, couldn't they just save some time by rounding up to 8,000, right? Yeah. Because the point is that that would probably work in a comedy club where people had a drink and they're enjoying the comedian. That is a joke, right? The 7,000, we know it's not 7,226 leaves. It's, yeah. I'm surprised they got away with trade descriptions because, <laughs> no, because it's, it's ironic and everything. Yeah. But when people make fun of that kind of thing, I'm at the back of the room going, yeah, that is the joke. You know, I remember seeing a comedian in Montreal. Oh, God, my God, the, the New Faces show, 2001, on the screen. And they was going, um, it was a female comedian. She went going, um, you know that song? Uh, I don't know if she sings it. That don't impress me much. She was, oh, I'm, you're a, a rocket scientist. That doesn't impress me much. Oh, you're Brad Pitt. That doesn't impress me much. I'm sorry, but that's quite impressive. And I thought, yeah, that's the joke. <laughs> that is the joke. And the audience are laughing. Yeah, you're right. But now I think about it, Brad Pitt is quite good looking, isn't he? And um, 
And the rocking songs, yeah, that takes years to do. <laughs> and they're laughing. And they're yeah. you're, making something, you're making fun of something. There's three types of virtual comedy. I won't go bore you with them, but that's one of them. Making something, fun of something that is intended as a joke. And sometimes you can make a real fool of yourself because you haven't got the joke. Yes. You're a politician makes a comment and you go, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was the point. Yeah. And it, it, it's really embarrassing because the comedian's supposed to be the one, you know, you're almost pretending yourself as the one who's, well, certainly the funniest person in the room, otherwise you shouldn't be there. Or certainly... The, funnier than most people in the room. That's your job, right? Yeah. And then if everyone realised that the joke... what you're, you're, you're standing on stage not realising that you're actually announcing to a room of people that you didn't get a joke. Yeah. Well, that's pretty embarrassing, given it the is. job is to make them. I mean, that's what happens on Twitter whenever you do a joke, though, right? So whenever you do a joke on Twitter, someone will say, oh, we'll try and add to the joke, or we'll go, this is the joke, and they'll... They will just miss the point that that oh, was. Oh, awkward. Well, I've only got 7,800 followers, so I don't have that problem. <laughs> okay, um, I remember good. Al Murray retweeted something I said, and um, I said something, but there was a big hoo-ha of the royals, and I said, well, if you don't like the royal family, don't vote for them, right? <laughs> and, um, yeah, and uh, some American went, uh, it's a monarchy. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then I wrote back and I went, you know, it was, it was a joke, you know, yeah. and this, then some troll came in and went, oh, if you have to explain the joke, it's not funny. Wonder why I haven't heard of you. Right? <laughs> just this, just this part of Just yeah. don't get involved. And I don't respond now. I just don't respond. I, I put about one a day just to get those people. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I do loads of tweets knowing someone's going to do it, and then, then I've won because I've caught the most people get that uh, what I'm doing. So it's, it's kind of a bit of fun. Uh, I do like it when other comedians give you a joke. I think you talk about that a little bit, but uh, there's. It is, is, is it really interesting that like a comedian can watch your set and you've been doing a joke for years and then some, there was a time when I was doing... There was a joke me and Stu used to do and I did it for ages in, in the set. Um, and it was... The setup was Jerry Hall um, had uh, has some advice on how to keep your man. Uh, so that's going to be worth listening to because uh, Jerry Hall's advice. And I say, prick up your ears, as if, you know, being sarcastic. And uh, Tim Vine eventually said to me... Uh, yeah, prick up your ears. That's the advice. That's not the advice. That's to be, you know. And you, so every time I do the, do the joke, every, the joke after that, you, you do it, get a big laugh off of Tim Vine's laugh joke. And, and then you're also thinking, oh, lovely Tim Vine giving me a joke. The <laughs> worst one is when you watch someone do an hour show in Edinburgh or anywhere and you go, you know what my favourite line of yours was? <laughs> and you pick the one line they didn't write. Yeah. <laughs> and that's your favourite line. Sometimes people on Twitter can actually add to joke. I did a tweet once. I said, I've just traced my family tree back so far. I got to a monkey, right? And this bloke went, wow, three generations. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that lovely? It is lovely. A nice troll. <laughs> Do you find that if you, when you're writing for other people, you say, I've ne- I, I have written for people on TV... I've, I've never had, a, you know, I've sometimes taken a joke from a comedian if they've suggested it, um, but not very much. Do you feel, I mean, it's sort of, for me, it feels like a comedian should be writing, it feels like it should be, you know, it's an authored medium, really. So it's weird if someone, I know you're just sort of helping usually rather than, like, write, you're not writing... The no, I'm not set. writing the whole set for them, no. Um, I, 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 well, as I say, if something that already exists... It's, you're not writing from scratch. The premise is there, the idea is there, the yeah. concept is there. And then you might go, look, there's two toppers. And I think that when someone goes on stage to do a show and there's two toppers here and a rewrite there, and there, it's still their show. I think when someone writes your whole show for you, then you may as well not be there because stand-ups c- comes from you, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. But I, I, I haven't got a problem with the idea that people employ me to... Yeah, I'm not the only one that does it. There are no, other comedians course, who do it. No. There are plenty of comedians who do it. But does it feel... You know, you don't feel... It doesn't feel like it will do. You don't feel like you're this kind of person. 
But I've seen other... I've seen comedy writers who, you know, write a, a fantastic script. They write the entire thing and then actors come and say the lines and everyone thinks the actor's amazing and they go, that was my, that was my joke. Do you, not, do you not feel like an ownership of an idea if, you, if, it, if it, someone else is doing? Does it not kind of hurt a little bit? No, I, the, the objective is to be creative. It doesn't matter who says it. I mean, I, I said something once. I wrote someone a press release and it, uh, the day it came out, I searched 8,000 hits on Google the day I wrote it. And then it ended up in Time magazine, credited to them. Right. And I just went, <clears throat> well, I did my job. Yeah. And um, I don't think, you know, if you get paid and people like it, then something happens. Two things really are involved in are income and creativity. So it doesn't matter. You've written plays you weren't in. Yeah. <clears throat> no, I've written th- stuff for plenty of people. But like, if, if one of your jokes then became like quoted, and then you open a book of quotations and it says whatever, you know, I'm very funny, Richard Herring, or whatever it is. Uh, would, you know, that would be like, yeah, but I, that wasn't it. But that, okay, there's a stadium-filling comedian who nicked one of my lines in 1997, and I thought, oh, well, it doesn't matter, it's only one line. And then I saw it turn on TV about five years ago, and it was 20,000 people in Manchester, and, uh, oh, it's getting closer, closer to it is now. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but, but the point is... Bird of Manning's dead now. And, <laughs> and so, but the, the point is, I remember thinking, I didn't give you that line, you took that line. Yeah. And, that, and that's different. Now you're watching someone being credited. If you Google that line, it's credited to that person. Right. I'm going, that's my line. You know, somebody once used one of my lines by mistake because it was something they'd heard in conversation. And it actually, and they compensated me hugely. Right. That was, that's a really gracious thing to do. But someone else stole one of my lines and... That, that, that never acknowledged it, and then they're, they're, they're stadium filling comedian, and that's—I yeah. wouldn't say bitter, but it's annoying, isn't it? Yeah, it's annoying. Of course, yeah, yeah. Um, look, the book's fantastic. I hope people will, uh, you know, I think if you, I think you'll know if you if you want to have this book. But I think if you know you want to have it, it's a book you have to have. You self-published this, right? I self-published. Yeah, so and by the way, if you're thinking of writing a book and you don't like the deal. A publisher offers you, or you can't get a publisher. Self-publishing is it's very, very. Are we, are we okay for time? Yeah. Okay. The amount of people, there are six people involved from start to finish. You, if you're Mac, you can buy a program called Vellum, V-E-L-L-U-M, and it sets out as a book for you. And, for example, my dad died last year. I dedicated it to my dad. I dragged, folded, to wrote dedication. It recognised the word dedication. It laid it out differently. Saved me doing that, right? right? And you can choose dozens and dozens of layouts and dozens of things. But, you know, you drag photographs, JPEGs into it, and you see it as a book. When you click on to, to generate it, it's free until you... Use it. So it's free, free, free. You click generate and it charges you the money. And you see it as a PDF. You see it as a book. It's very exciting. Then you get the cover design as a PDF. And then you get a KDP account on um, Amazon. And then you upload these two things. And it's a book for sale around the world. How exciting is that? And it's so exciting. And you get, you know, you you can click on your account and see the sales in different countries and how many are sold. And it's just mind-blowing that this thing and the machines that print them print any book to order. Is that, there's a machine not the size of a small car that chops paper up and then it sends it to the thick printer. The printer prints it, it comes out, cover goes on it. That's your individual book, goes on a conveyor belt and goes off to be sent to the other person. Well, now, I thought about this is incredible. A printer that doesn't just print book after book the same, it prints any book. Yeah. And I thought, my printer does that. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, isn't it? Yeah. The only difference is it's got a database of like 30 million books, right? Yes. But there's about one, one and a half million self-published books on Amazon. And the thing is, whatever you think of Amazon, whatever your politics are, your views, for somebody who can't get offered a deal in advance, I got that off the ground for 1,200 quid, including the app, the illustrations, 
the proofreading. Um, I mean, 1,200 quid. Yeah. It's not hard to find 1,200 quid. You can borrow 1,200 quid to actually get a book out and then suddenly you watch it get in. And the biggest buzz I've had creatively in my life is seeing the sales going up and the reviews coming from around the world and people uh, on Instagram sending you a picture of themselves in Saudi Arabia, you know, going to dish dash with the book like that. And you go, it makes the world so small. So whatever you think about what Amazon does to the world, and obviously the retail side of it is debatable with regard to, you know, people going, all shops are closing down, whatever. But I could not get my book around the world without doing this. Yeah. It's just never going to happen. Well, it's, you know, it's great that you can do it. And like in the past, people used to say, I would write a book if someone would publish it, but, you know, you can't get in the door. And, you know, you can, now you can do it. And that's one of the wonderful things. I mean, it's, it's good for comedy. The, you know, on the internet, you can do so many different things. This is one of those things we're doing right now. Um, so, you know, it is, it is terrific that uh, you've done this, that you put all the work in and it's out there. So I hope people, you can just buy it from Amazon or is it only Amazon or is it... Only Amazon, only Find, Amazon. finding your comic genius. Yeah. Um, just can I just say, the, the equivalent of that in, in visuals is YouTubers and people with Instagram accounts because they, they did, 20 years ago, you had to go through TV stations yeah. and you had, you know, then there would be the kind of, you know, the boys club of, you know, probably middle-aged white men giving jobs to middle-aged white men and that's where diversity is a good thing because people are more conscious than not giving jobs to people who look like them. That's yeah. a good thing. As long as, the, as long as there's still talented people getting the work, right? But the thing is that, you know, the idea of you have a phone and an idea and an Instagram account and then the meritocracy of it all goes... I mean, obviously there's some stuff that's considered a bit lowbrow and that's because their fans are just, you know, people who hardly look at their phones. But a good idea can now be seen and, you know, there's no excuse now. There's no excuse. Yeah. Other than laziness. Right, it's brilliant. Well done, Adam. It's genuinely a fantastic book, and I wish you lots of luck with it. I usually ask on the book club version of this podcast uh, if you've read any books you would like to recommend. But so uh, this is going to be difficult for you. I've read one novel in my life. I, I, I've got attention deficit, whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I've read one novel in my life, and it's The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. Any good? It's the best book I've ever read. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for the amazing Adam Bloom! Thank you very much. Thank you, Adam. You have been listening to Rahalastapa with me, Richard Herring, and my guest, Adam Bloom. Scant regard, do the music for this. You should know that by now. Thank you very much. Also, I'm indebted to Chris Evans, not that one. Thank you to Ben Evans, not that one. Uh, thank you to Beckcliffe and George Lingford and everyone at the Prince's Theatre in Aldershot. This is Sky Potato Fuzz and GoFuzzTheStripe.com production. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. 
Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening. RichardHerring.com slash gigs. GoFasterStripe.com for all my books, downloads, all that sort of shizzle. Oh, yeah, I know all the cool words. And... Um, would love to see you on the on the Can I Have My Ball Back tour if you can make it. Bye.